This is Paul Aronowitz back again with another podcast for you. This is the third podcast in a series of interviews I've been doing with Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine workshop presenters from the spring Philadelphia, Pennsylvania meeting in April of 2019. If you haven't listened to the first two, I think they came out pretty well. Uh, The first one is Climate Changers, uh, which is an interview with three faculty at Emory University, their School of Medicine. It was an excellent uh, workshop that was done about how to create a really excellent learning environment. Uh, The second one uh, is an interview with Mike Krug, who's at uh, Boise with the University of Washington School of Medicine. And he talked about speaking to large groups. Uh, Really helpful podcast. I've gotten some good feedback from faculty around the country about this podcast and how helpful it was. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Amy Shaheen, and this will be an interview that's a little bit drier of a topic, but extremely important nonetheless. It was one of the most highly rated workshops at the Ames Spring Meeting as well, and it's called Maximizing Medical Student Documentation in an Era of New CMS Medical Student Documentation Rules. So whether you've figured it out or not, and it takes a lot of work to figure out how to get this through your institutions, I think you'll find this interview helpful. So sit back, enjoy, and listen to Amy teach us about maximizing medical student documentation. Well, thank Uh thank you very much for joining me today on this podcast. Um, Today we're going to be talking about a workshop that uh, you did with... um, several co-presenters at the Spring AIM meeting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, called Maximizing Medical Student Documentation in an Era of New CMS Medical Student Documentation Rules. Uh, And I was hoping that before we get started, Amy, you could just tell me um, which institution you're at, what your role is there, uh, and then maybe just very briefly background of where you went to medical school and did your residency. Uh, Thank you, first of all, for having me, Paul. I am Amy Shaheen. I'm at the University of North Carolina. I've been here for about 13 years. I currently lead the clinical year in the School of Medicine. I just recently stepped down after 12 years as the clerkship director, and I also lead faculty development for the School of Medicine. In my other life, I'm a general internist, and I work for the UNC Healthcare System as a medical director for population health. I went to medical school at the University of Chicago, and I did my internship at the University of Chicago, but then my husband, who was two years ahead of me, matched at UNC for gastroenterology, and so I did something a lot of students wouldn't even think about, didn't know was possible, which is that I transferred residencies to University of North Carolina, and that's where I've been. Wow, that's quite quite a story. <laughs> um, yeah, at some point I'd love to have another conversation with you for one of these podcasts about your experience with faculty development there. I think that's a area that um, podcast listeners would really enjoy hearing more about. Um, I would love to do that. Um, so, uh, just again, also before we get started, what's your favorite thing to do outside of medicine? Um, I am a sports freak. Any kind of sport. I love to watch, play, 
cheer on people, watch it on TV. I do. I, I played a couple of college sports. I did basketball and track and still do a little basketball or coach it sometimes. I play tennis. I am a big Buckeye fan because my husband grew up as a Buckeye fan, so we cheer for the Buckeyes in football and the Tar Heels in basketball. I like to hike. I'm a scout leader, so I do it alone or with others, anything where I can be outside or chasing a ball. Wow, excellent. Um, Tell me, Amy, a little bit about who the other co-presenters of this workshop were in Philadelphia. Okay, so the first uh, other co-presenter was Shobi Chetta from the University of Wisconsin. She's our um, past president for AIM. Amber Pinkovaj from the University of Chicago. Amber is the current vice chair for the Survey and Scholarship Committee. And then Lisa Willett, who I believe is the current APTM president. She's from the University of Alabama and is a program director there. Excellent. Um, and one thing you didn't mention in your background is you are also the president-elect of, of the Clerkship Directors of Internal Medicine Council, I believe, correct? That, uh, that's right, uh, yes. Among your many other um, uh, <laughs> talents. Um, so, Amy, this topic, looking at the title and looking through the slides, um, I have to say, no offense, Matt, it's not the jazziest <laughs> um, subject for a workshop in the world, but it was one of the highest rated workshops at the spring meeting in Philadelphia. What is it that you think captured the imagination of the audience for this workshop? I think that clerkship directors have been asking for CMS rule changes for a long time so that their students could engage more. And so I think it was about the possibilities of learner engagement that got really the the clerkship directors excited. But I think, as everything, policy is not process. And we believed, and I think the attendance at the uh, workshop confirmed, that many clerkship directors are now encountering barriers to implementation of that policy. Interesting. So it, it, so it was a well-attended workshop as well, not only highly rated, but well-attended. Well, very well attended, yes. It was um, the sixth workshop session, which usually, you know, everybody's on their plane and done with the meeting, but we had a full house. It was very exciting. Oh, good. Can you briefly describe uh, in a nutshell what you guys covered at the meeting, and then maybe we'll get into some of those specifics? We really wanted to help others with solutions. We we handpicked ourselves because we were a group of presenters who had come up with solutions. And we recognized through a survey that we had done with the survey committee that not everyone was having as much success as we were. And so this was really aimed at um, sharing solutions with others and helping them figure out how they might tackle this um, process at their own institutions. And so I think what we really went over were four different ways that we had approached problems or um, some of the solutions that we had um, come come across. So when I downloaded your slides from the, um, the AIM website, the pie chart of how many of the respondents <laughs> uh, was kind of cut off. So I couldn't tell yeah. how many of those respondents allow students to fully engage in documentation activities. Um, how, what, what percentage was that? Do you remember? Yeah, so of the 110 that we surveyed, 32 or 29% said that they were now letting their medical students 
and gave. We consider these people the early adopters, people who figured it out quickly. And what were some of the barriers to implementation of the new CMS rules that you guys heard about either before your workshop or during it? Well, I think um, the barriers really depend on where you are in the adoption process. So if you've gotten nowhere, it's usually compliance that's the problem. And if you have started, you've got compliance on board, then you start to run into other barriers, things like workflows, attestations, faculty development, um, some perhaps legal liability issues, uh, residents, if you're at a teaching hospital, perhaps a variety of the EHRs, um, and that there may be different workflows and IT solutions depending on different EMRs. I think those were, and sometimes student access in the EHR. So there are a lot of different barriers that once you are able to get over the compliance hurdle that you might run into. And we wanted to, again, share some of the solutions that we had um, come up with individually. And I think probably because you've all, you at each of your institutions, you probably encountered, correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably encountered different barriers to implementation, um, perhaps it might be most helpful to our listeners if you just briefly walk through what some of the barriers were at UNC you encountered and then how you overcame those barriers to successful implementation of full student engagement. I think that the first barrier any institution is going to encounter is going to be their compliance department. This is something new, and I think it's very important, and I think Dr. Chetta outlined it well, that getting stakeholder engagement with your compliance officer, looking for examples of other places and policies that have been implemented so that you can share those with your compliance officer. One thing a compliance officer doesn't want is a whole bunch of work dumped on their desk, and so we actually drew up the policy and brought it to the compliance officer instead of saying, hey, can you make a new policy that this would work? And so we've tried to share some of those policies, and I'll, I'll give a website when we finish the podcast where others can use those examples and take them to their compliance officers and say, hey, this is the process they're using at this institution, and this is the policy they're using at that institution. One suggestion I would try to do is to use an institution that is geographically close to yours because of the way Medicare divides their um, auditing, their compliance and billing is based on geographic um, areas called MACs. It might be helpful to try to find somebody who's geographically close and share their compliance policies. So once you have compliance on board, then you start to run into other things like your EMR. And once again, you need to get stakeholders involved from ISD, or we call it ISD at our place, but from your information technology group to help um, circumnavigate those issues with um, student access, uh, being able to see student notes. And once again, you'll usually have to bring um, the compliance, um, the, you know, bring the fact that the compliance group is on board um, to the IT people. Some. EMRs, it's easier than others. Uh, one thing we learned from our workshop, and we will be doing um, kind of a follow-up workshop, is that people want to be with people who have the same EMR to understand how the workflows work in those EMRs. 
So in addition to finding somebody who's geographically close to you, if you can find somebody who shares in EMR and figure out how they've shared their how they've figured out their solutions, that may also be helpful to you. Um, I would say that some policies have been created. Uh, University of Chicago, we've posted some policies from their institution about the numbers of nodes. Um, I've posted some faculty development um, modules that we use at University of North Carolina. Sharing and modifying those for your institution may be a good idea. We have um, realized that we have to teach our students how to write good notes. We thought we were doing that, but we may have to include some things about billing that we previously didn't include because their notes didn't matter. But we have tried to share resources on a shared resource page through the Alliance for Clinical Education, thinking that not only would internists benefit from this, but family medicine doctors and other subspecialties may um, appreciate that information. And I, the last thing I would say is that it may be overwhelming to do all of this at one time. And so I think the best example of not trying to do everything at one time is to shrink the change. And that's common parlance in quality improvement, which is don't try to fix everything at one time. Maybe try one service, talk to the compliance officer and say, hey, we want to try this out. We want you to be involved in the process and see how it goes on one service before you start spreading it out to all services. And that's what they, that's the approach they took at University of Alabama when they were having difficulty getting larger stakeholder engagement. So, so backing up just for a second, as I was listening to you describe the process for overcoming some of these barriers, um, uh-huh. it struck me that I probably should have had you, for our um, listeners, define full engagement uh, in terms of students being able to write notes and faculty and residents being able to attest to those notes. What does full engagement mean? For us, full engagement was defined as students being able to get into the EMR, write a note that counted and could be used for billing. And this would be for third and fourth year students as well? Well, so we asked, we asked that specifically um, when we did a uh, survey with the research committee. We asked them if, you know, did they limit who was able to do that? And some places do limit, but um, when we we asked fully engaged, that meant third and fourth year, but um, there were others who had only fourth years on sub-I's um, that could do things um, in the EMR. So I do think that there's a broad range right now, um, but by fully engaged, we meant all clinical students being able to write notes. Okay, and that's what you're doing at UNC and also your co-presenters um, yes. doing? So they're- yes, except with the exception of Lisa Willett, her group had started much smaller uh, with just one service, and they were then at the point of spread from that one service. Okay, but, but in general, they were third and fourth year students, because I think that's really helpful to know. Um, mm-hmm. And um, can a resident attest a student note for purposes of billing? So that's a really interesting question that we did ask about. So it turns out that if if a resident is allowed to use a note, so about two-thirds of the time, I, I believe it was 21 of the 32 said a resident could attest a student note and use that as their note. They 
if the resident could use the note, then an attending could use the note. So a resident could attest the student note and then the attending could attest the resident note. About a third of the time, residents couldn't use their notes at all. But they were, there were rules around when a resident could use a note. So about half said, well, the resident can use a note if they independently perform all the functions themselves and agree with it, then they could edit the note and attest the note and make it theirs. Some of them, the other half said, you can do it as long as you watch the student doing it. So either way, it, it required um, some type of laying out the rules for when a resident could use those notes. I see. And what, what is your rule at uh, University of North Carolina that you're using? Our rule is that as long as the resident is present while a student is performing or if they independently, you really can do either in our, in our institution. They can attest the note. So they could be there while the student was performing those activities, or they could come back and redo what the student had done? That's right. Okay. Um, and then for an attending, the attending then can attest the resident note after the resident is attended, uh, um, attested, sorry, not attended. When the attending comes by and sees the patient and then reads the resident note that's been attested to the student note, the attending can then attest to the resident note sort of in standard language that we would use for a resident note? That's right. Okay. All yeah, right. and they would make any edits that they thought are found differently, just, just like you would normally do for a resident note. Okay. And what's the feedback been from your students about this new system? Well, so Amber... Pinkovac at University of Chicago actually asked their students, and the students like it. I, I haven't surveyed our students, but I would say generally they like it. They feel more engaged. They uh, feel like they're part of the team and that they're getting more feedback on their notes um, and that they, they matter, that they are an instrumental part of the team. I think other positives that have come out of this is that um, clerkship directors are using it as a recruiting tool for outpatient preceptors, and they feel that both outpatient and inpatient preceptors might be more satisfied with having students if the students are able to contribute to the team. So it, it may reduce the workload on the attending to be teaching, seeing the patient with the student, but then the student may be offloading some of the work by writing a note that uh, the attending was there for to, to, to observe, basically. Correct? Right. I think that's right. And I think that was the spirit of the rule change, that it would decrease the burden on primary care preceptors in the ambulatory world, but also in the inpatient world. I think one question that's still outstanding that I would like information on, uh, we did try to get some in-service questions added, but it, 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 they weren't accepted. But we, I would like to know how the residents feel about this, because they're a group that we worry about burnout a lot in. And so I think we still don't know how the residents feel about this rule change. Well, it, it's interesting. Um, mainly, I'm here to interview you about your experiences with this. But we, we um, have, at least on the internal medicine service, have engagement with this. And the feedback that I've seen in the activity evaluations from the students has been quite positive, um, like long paragraphs about uh -huh. 
how much more engaged they felt, how much more responsible for the patients they felt, and how much more feedback they'd gotten on medicine uh, around the writing of their notes. And um, I haven't actually asked that question of the residents, how they feel about it, but I am 99% certain that they like it um, because the interns are able to go in and watch the student or reproduce things and then the students writing the note, they're editing it and attesting to it. And then, um, and then we're coming along and attesting to their note. Um, but it would, be, it would be good to have more data on that uh, about the residents. Um, yeah, I think that the, the teachers are more engaged with the learners, too, because I think the, the rule changes created an opportunity for direct observation. Whereas before there wasn't much motivation to do that, and so I, I think we all feel that this is a good change. Uh, it'd be nice to be able to quantify that. Yeah, it is kind of nice because as much as sometimes we feel like the the sky is falling in in medical care, uh, you know, or medical education, this has been seems like so far has been a really good change that's having a positive impact on education of our students and perhaps maybe our residents indirectly. Mm-hmm. I agree. So in the end, um, what, what are probably, just boiling down what you guys talked about at your workshop, um, you've, you've talked about how to overcome a lot of the obstacles to implementation of full engagement of students in writing notes. Um, but are there any other tips you have for someone who's sort of struggling with how to get this rolled out at their institutions? best advice would be just to shrink that change and find the right stakeholders. You, you need, if you are a young clerkship director, you've just started, I think it's important to know you're not going to probably be able to do this on your own, right? That you need to get somebody who has, who's in a position of power to help you affect change. So start small, make your proposal small, and then try to get the right stakeholders engaged. Excellent. Um, and are there any downsides to this new CMS rule that we should be aware of, other than other than overcoming the obstacles to implementing it at your institution? Well, I think that this should be about learner engagement and remembering the importance to learning, that this should not just be service. And one of the um, presenters, Dr. Pinkovac, made the point that when this was initially rolled out, they, some of the preceptors thought that meant write all my notes. And so that starts to become a service obligation that I think risks more burnout and detracts from learning. So I think being cautious, talking to your students, making sure that, that we haven't crossed into that too much service and not enough learning. I also think that we need to think about um, our risk as far as compliance audits and um, when others start auditing their charts it'd be important for them to share what's happening and making sure that we're all aware and we can be careful that we're um, we're not going to put our hospitals at risk and that was part of our agreement with our compliance group is to make sure that we're doing it properly but I also I don't want to scare people because I really don't think that this is going to be as big a deal as I, as some are worried about. I believe 
that CMS changed the rule because they don't plan on this being a big part of the future of healthcare. We want to take credit for this rule change. You know, AIM and ACP and the Society of Teachers and Family Medicine and SGIM that, you know, we advocated for this and this change happened. But I think that it really, that CMS's willingness to change probably had more to do with the changes in healthcare and alternative payment models and reforms around how we provide medicine much more so than our efficacy. I really don't think notes and levels of care based on note elements are likely going to be as big a concern to CMS because we're moving into value-based care and providing that high-value care and documentation. uh, Providing high-value care will be important, not the documentation. And so if we look at other groups like surgery and their bundled payments, you know, their attendings don't even write notes every day. And I think that's because it's not important to their payment model. So I think with time, we'll be able to really focus on notes as a communication tool rather than as a billing tool. And that's when I think notes will really become much more meaningful than they've been in the past. Oh, those are all great points. And <clears throat> I think a lot of things, uh, a lot of us haven't thought about, even um, institutions that have um, gotten these documentation rules um, through. So thank you very much. Sure. Any last thoughts, Amy? I would just encourage anyone listening who's looking for resources to go. We've worked closely with the Alliance for Clinical Education to post resources on um, their website because it's not password protected and anyone can get to it. So it's allianceforclinicaleducation.org. And if you click on the resources, there's a whole uh, CMS section for resources for anyone who's interested in this. Excellent. And I think there's also some, uh, some institutions have um, publicly available videos um, going through this as a sort of faculty development tool. Because I think we used one from one of the Midwestern medical schools, and I can't remember for the life of me which one it was, but there are also yeah. some outside resources that might be helpful as well. Well, send, send me the links, and I'll see if I can talk them into putting them all in one, one spot so everybody can find them. Excellent. Well, Amy, I want to thank you for joining me today. This was, I think, extremely helpful, and I certainly learned a lot, and I think our listeners will get a lot out of this as well. Mm-hmm.